0: Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am sitting here with Eric... Dr. Eric Yates, excuse me, I almost messed that up. (laughs) No problem. He worked hard for that title and we have to use it. Uh, Eric is the trumpet professor at the University of Alabama School of Music. Um, He's a freelancer in the Alabama, the Southeast region, uh, plays with us in the Alabama Symphony often, and I think his most important title is uh, My Friend. Oh, thank you, Ryan. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Eric has been, it's, this, this episode was a bit Eric's idea actually. Um, and which is really cool for me that somebody kind of people or other people were thinking about cool ideas for what, uh, they could share on the podcast. But, um, beyond Eric's freelancing, uh, that he's done in his past, Eric has had the opportunity to, um, go to Russia, uh, through his university a few times. And so he thought it might be kind of cool if, uh, he just sort of spoke, On the podcast, a little bit about that and how that opportunity came about. Um, Important things for maintaining that relationship and then how you could possibly do it when you don't have the power of a university behind you. So, welcome, Eric. Thank you for being here. Great. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, I think we should start with your path. I mean, you don't have to go all the way back, but mm-hmm. just, um, enough of your past that we kind of understand like your relationship with freelancing, how you built your career, mostly in Chicago and things that you think are important to have developed that and to how, you know, to maintain it and things like that.
1: Sure. Well, I, um, I am currently, as you said, the professor of trumpet at the University of Alabama, and I've been there since 2007, and that's a terrific position to be in. I'm very fortunate to have that job, and it's very rewarding, and I, I, I love every day working there. And the teaching is rewarding. A lot of wonderful playing opportunities have come through that. And um, the path to get there was not direct like it is for most people in our business where where you end up or happen to be at a given time is often not necessarily what you expect. But then if you're um, if you're intelligent about the way you take each step uh, at any point in your career, you can always look to the past and everything seems to connect in a way that's very logical and seems as though it was designed that way. And, and that's something that, uh, that I often try to impart to the students that are just starting on their journey. You know, when we talk about how I got where I am, but let's see, I can start, uh, with college really, which is when we all really get serious and start thinking like professionals or pre-professionals. So I did my undergrad at Vanderbilt university. And at the time, the, uh, teachers there were um, um, people from the symphony in Nashville. And I studied with Gary Armstrong and uh, had a great experience with him, learned a lot about the business with him. He was uh, uh, in the orchestra and a very busy trumpet player and was really generous about just allowing me to tag along and see what he was doing and and learn a lot about just what he did day to day. And, um, and it really reinforced my feeling that I was going the right way, that this is what I wanted to do to make music like that and, and sort of be in that environment. And, you know, a lot of times I deal with this a lot with my students. They're, they're um, working through a transition in college, at least at the beginning of their undergrad, where essentially band, you know, an extracurricular activity, something that may have been, the center of their life for a long time, it was extracurricular in high school. You don't have to be in band to graduate high school. And then when you decide to be a music major, if it's a education major or performance or whatever, you're, you're really committing to something in a, New and deeper way, and so when I went to college and was um, you know seeing some of that from the you know seeing the real world of being a trumpet player, it uh, it it helped me to realize yeah this is cool this is what I want to do so I got some really great instruction from that of course just good meat and potatoes trumpet training as well from um, Gary and then at the uh, time of my graduation I you know was in in pretty good shape to you know be competitive for a, a, you know, a step up in terms of um, moving to a bigger city, maybe a school with some more reputation, a teacher with some, um, you know, reputation for, uh, for success. And ultimately went to Northwestern and I studied with Mr. Chickowitz for my master's. And also part of my plan was to go somewhere, wherever that would be, that would allow me to stay, to graduate, get that degree, uh, and then stay in whatever city I'm in and try to make a go of it. So Chicago was my city of choice. And um, it was probably, I think between my degrees was eight years, nine years, something like that. I was in Chicago for a total of 12. And at the very beginning, of course, it was a master's degree. And at the end, it's when I got my doctorate. And in between was the freelance career where I did a lot of teaching, a lot of playing. And, you know, at the time I left the city, I was principal trumpet in the Northbrook Symphony, which is one of the regional groups. And I was doing some... Um, collegiate teaching a little bit, um, adjunct position at uh, Lake Forest College. I was teaching at some of the city colleges in Chicago. And then I had my studio in my house with uh, you know pre-college kids and middle school and some high school. And so all of that, I built up over time while I was there in Chicago. The doctorate degree was not really something I ever thought I was going to go after. But I found that in my teaching, which like most Freelancers sometimes the teaching is taken on as a way to fill the daytime hours when you're not rehearsing yeah, or doing yeah, anything right. else, and you know you're just trying to make make ends meet really, and it's a good way to make some money in those hours when you're not otherwise playing. Uh, that grew to a point where I was enjoying it enough to think I really like this. I wonder how far I could take this teaching thing. And another big part of it was the longer I was at it, the more that I had students that maybe I you know, started even, or at least had for four or five years. And I was then helping them, a couple of them, get their college auditions ready. And then they'd get in, they might, you know, go to some Illinois area university and, you know, be a music ed major or something like that. And it's, you know, I'd help them do it. And a couple of cases they get in and then they'd go away and, Mom would give me some nice gift. Thanks for being his trumpet teacher all these years, and it just felt bittersweet. I was like, now is the time I really want to teach that guy or girl, you know. And so at that point, I started to sniff around and see, hey, can I actually get a teaching position, you know, something that is uh, in higher ed and and has some permanence to it. But I never wanted to step away from playing. It was always going to be like it was from the very beginning, supportive of me as a player. You know, that's always just been how I've defined myself and, and what I'm, you know, most, most interested in doing is playing the trumpet, you know? And, um, and then, so that led me to go back to Northwestern. And at that point, Barbara Butler and Charlie Geyer were teaching there and, and uh, they took me in for their, uh, earned my DM there. And then I did. And, with that, uh, you know, credential was able to apply for higher ed positions. And that's when I landed the job in Alabama and I've been down here ever since. Awesome. As a freelancer, this
0: is something, uh, this is part of the Freeway Philharmonic series. So, mm-hmm. uh, Vic, was you try to give some advice. Uh, what do you feel like is integral in building
1: and maintaining a successful freelance career? Yeah, that's a great question. I did it, in the time period before social media, but internet was, of course, around. So, um, just having a website, things like that. Um, I don't want to say I was cutting edge or anything, but you know, as a person with some capability around a computer, you know, I was willing to to learn about that and get that going. That helped. Um, but the world today is so reliant on that, you know. And a static website, like I'm talking about, is less useful than an active social media presence. So that's certainly uh, something that in today's world is important. And a lot of younger people are very comfortable with that. But as you probably already figured out, you know, reading Facebook and, and Instagram and stuff every day versus like being a creator of content is a whole different thing. It's a whole nother level, you know? And um, um, I, I think having said all of that, really what it all boils down to, whatever the, the means that we use to connect with people, it just comes down to networking, and, and meeting people and having positive experiences, being reliable, you know, all the basic stuff that we hear all the time, you know, yeah, be on time, true. Yeah. show up, know your part, sound good, make sure you're putting in your time and whatever is necessary that you play in tune on time with a good sound. And, you know, that way you're asked back. I always felt like the most, You might be most excited to be, oh, wow, so-and-so or or this group or whatever asked me to play with them. That's really exciting. But the one that really matters is when they ask you to play with them again. Right, right. You know? And um, so in my years in Chicago, there was plenty of that where I was just trying to meet as many people as I could, play as as, as, uh, as best I could. And of course, always be reliable and be nice and agreeable and flexible and all that stuff that that our teachers and even our parents, you know, it, we're just raised to know all that stuff, but putting it into practice is extremely important. So once that's all in place, just do your business, you know, just yeah. do it. And um, I, I would say one thing about the, um, the, the that's one, the, so far what I'm talking about is like getting gigs or either doing gigs, but getting gigs is the tricky part, you know, it's getting out there. And, and once you get started, then more come, but you also got to make some of your own opportunities, you know, so when I was up uh, in Chicago for the for my master's degree right away, like a lot of students do, formed a brass quintet the core membership of which, you know, would kind of move around a little bit, but for the most part, we all graduated, stayed in Chicago, and that was a, an ensemble that was an important part of what what helped put food on the table, you know, because mm-hmm. we did a lot of work with that, and the brass quintet is very versatile. It's one of the things as, as musicians, as brass musicians, we're lucky to have that. Sure, sure. Available because it can do anything. You know, we can play summer gigs outside. You can do a wedding with no other uh, instrumental support. You can cover the whole thing.
0: Well, and the variety of music that's offered, too. You can get all the way from Renaissance to more commercial style. That's right. Uh, I think it really helps in. just programming in general, being able to take advantage of all of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so our, our quintet that we had, we named ourselves the Lakeside Brass. And that's probably a name that's been used before and, <laughs> and, and since, you know, by other groups. But that's what we called it. And we, um, you know, made, made a few relationships that really helped. One was a church in Evanston that let us rehearse there, let us have that place. Um, one of the guys in the group also was able to work on an arrangement where he could do his, his uh, studio teaching there because he lived in an apartment, so he just was um, you know, unable to do that at his, at his residence. So he had, my um, oh gosh, at, at the peak of it, he probably had like 50 or 60 students a week, and he would do that there at the, uh, at the church, and then they would let us play concerts there, put on our own sort of recital series, and um, things like that were often not about earning money. I mean, if you're playing a gig with the quintet, that's one thing, but if you're doing a recital, You know, you might have a free will offering or something, but you're not necessarily uh, charging tickets, or at least we didn't get to that point. Um, And that wasn't really even a goal. You know, a lot of it was just to, you know, keep our skills up and to play for the enjoyment of it. And uh, and then, of course, by providing something to that church, that's how, you know, that's kind of how we paid them back, so to speak, for letting us use the place. Yeah. You know, so things like that. Uh, and there's many more things I could name as examples. Those are examples of, of finding your own and making your own opportunities and then things build off of that. You know, you don't just, as we used to say, you don't just wait till the phone to ring. Of course nowadays, no phone never rings, you know, <laughs> but some other means wait till the, you know, you get a, a text message, I guess, but you can't just wait for that stuff. Yeah. You know, you gotta, you gotta get out there and, and hustle and just be cool, meet people. So, uh-
0: I've always been taught that you don't say no to a gig. Do you agree with this? Mm. I think that there are times that it, it can be helpful, beneficial, necessary. I mean, we're not necessarily talking extreme circumstances. Of course, we're just saying, is there ever time where you would get called for a gig and you would say, it would be better for
1: me not to do that. I think it depends on where you are in your, in your career. And I don't necessarily mean that there are times that you really need to take everything and there are other times when you can afford to say no. Uh, and I don't even necessarily mean that in a money way, afford. You know, there's other reasons that you can afford to say no. You just, you don't, you don't need to do that. You know, you're, you um, but it's not just about that. It's, it's, it, I think it's in the same category as the question of, do you do gigs for free? Right. Because sometimes people have a variety of opinions on that too is it good to do a freebie just to get your name out there or whatever, you know? And I was always taught, don't give it away, you know, figure out a way that, that in some way, shape or form, you get paid for what you're doing so that there's an understanding that you're doing something professional that has preparation behind the scenes that the people you're doing it for don't see. They just see the end product and then they have more respect for it. Generally speaking, I feel like that. Um, and then kind of in the same vein, then do you, um, do you say no to gigs? Well, you just got to kind of figure that out, you know? Once you are older, you have a family and you've got other responsibilities and maybe you're starting to notice at certain times of year, you're spread a little too thin. There may be something that you need that you're neglecting. And by saying no, you know, it may just be your rest or your state of mind, you know, <laughs> just yeah, mental that's kind health. Of th- I, that's really the only reason that I ever say no to stuff these days. Um, because... If you're asked to do something, well, you know it also depends if it is just kind of a um, a gig where you're called by people who, who don't understand what you're doing. Like sometimes a no is right because it's just sort of appropriate, you know, to say, well, no. What you're really looking for, I think, is you know maybe a, a local student. I'd be happy to help out, but it isn't, you know, this isn't really the sort of thing that that uh, that I, I would do. That 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 rarely happens. But you know, there's that kind of a no versus the. Um, just saying no, because you're just, you're full, you know? Yeah. I mean, even after I started teaching at Alabama, it was a big adjustment for me because even though I am a college professor, I'm likely to, you know, continue to be that, uh, as what will end up being the majority of my career. I had over a decade of being a freelancer before that you know, and, um, and I didn't do a lot. I did some college teaching as part of that, but I I haven't uh, had numerous jobs at numerous colleges. Like this is really something that came a little bit later. I was older, I was, uh, you know, 30, young thirties when I got the job. And, And so because of that, I had a lot of habits, you know, and I still have these habits like getting extremely early to gigs. Like this morning I was there like outrageously early and I'm totally fine with that um, because I have some miles to cover and it's just, I can't shake that feeling of if I'm home and I'm not relaxing for an extra 15 minutes, just get in the car and go. That all comes from my freelance uh, life um, and, and how, and what just got pounded in my head through that. And the never say no was part of that too. So when I first started teaching at Alabama, I was saying yes to anything, you know, I would get, a lot of, uh, calls and things because, oh, there's a new teacher at UA. So, you know, so there was, there was a lot of that. And I said yes to everything. it got to the point where it was just too busy, you know? And, um, so I think that's kind of a, an individual situation where I say, oh, what is my career? What is my job? What are the, what are the gigs really, um, Therefore, like what what would that do f- do for what I'm trying to fill my time with and build as my career?
0: Yeah, I feel I've just had this fear of if I say no, they won't call me again. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's validity to that, or have you experienced that once you're maybe the very first time if you say no, they might not call you again, but especially if it's a gig that you've been able to maybe become called back for or if it's somebody mm-hmm. you have a good relationship with, have you experienced that sometimes even if you've said no, you still maintain a good relationship with that person and that it doesn't necessarily negatively affect you? Because like I said, that fear of not getting called back is pervasive, even with people yeah. I know that I yeah. have a good relationship with.
1: Yeah, no, in in unless I'm forgetting something literally 100% of the time that I've ever turned anything down, it's not been a regrettable decision where the person, you know what I mean? And if it is somebody that, that uh, misunderstands or has just a certain attitude about that, that it creates a problem and that they wouldn't call you again, or they think less of you because you said no, then that's not really people you want to work with anyway. I think it's a good good philosophy, but I am asked that a lot by some students. You know, I'm afraid if I say no, they won't call me again. And I always say that if you're declining a gig respectfully And with, you know, graciously and and you're thankful for the opportunity and it's because you've, you're you're not available. First of all, you're under no obligation to explain why you're unavailable, right? But sometimes it's okay to say that, you know, well, I'm sorry, I have a symphony uh, engagement that day or something. You know, you can just sort of drop that (laughs) And, and no one could hold that against you. You know, so if depending on what the reason is, you may or may not want to say what the reason is, but be, if you have a good reason and you're being called with some professional respect, that's why they call you in the first place, they're probably going to give you the benefit of the doubt that if you say no, you're not blowing them off or something along those lines, you know, I think a bigger Problem happens when people say no to gigs after they've accepted them because something better comes along. Yeah, that's horrible that's in my opinion. The, yes, and I saw that so much throughout my uh, career, and I, I just, I don't know. I often would see, you know, this sort of file this under the world is unfair file but i've seen people do that and seem to have you know no no consequences from it but that's yeah. just something i could never ever do and and uh, because of that i i'm also very thoughtful about what i do accept and get booked, you know, you gotta be smart. If it's, if it's Easter, for example, and somebody's maybe new to, new to their location or is a new to the profession and they don't have a a regular good Easter gig or something, don't just grab necessarily the first thing that comes along. If it's a really poor gig and you think, well, you know, probably something better is going to come along. You might be right. If it's two months out and they're offering, you know, $5, don't, don't, (laughs) don't say yes. Uh, But if you do, Yeah. Do it. That's it. Yeah. Follow through Easter and Christmas
0: Eve are actually a a really good example of what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, as I've grown in my faith, those holidays have become significantly more important to me. And now that I have a family, right? Like, I don't know if I want to be this, that gig I had, I'm not sure if I want to be there from 4 PM to 1 AM on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Now, like, obviously the, the, the trade-off is I don't make that money. But that's kind of what I mean about saying no to a particular gig. It's like oftentimes I think the only way I can say no is if I have another gig, you know. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I'm becoming more and more of the opinion that, there are other reasons to say no. And yeah, like you were saying, maybe you you have a family and that is mm-hmm. a active priority in your life. Or maybe, like you said, maybe you're just busy, maybe you're run down, maybe just like you recognize maybe you have some sort of audition, orchestral audition, right. and you realize I could take this, but that would take me away from preparing. Right. Like it's just a it's an interesting thing because I think that fear of you know, not even rejection, just not being called back. Like it's going to end your career to say no. (laughs) Yeah. I think drives a lot. At least it's driven me to possibly accept gigs that I don't necessarily even, and then I'm resentful that I accepted it, right? Mm -hmm, Right. That I'm mad that I'm doing this thing that I don't know if I even
1: really wanted to do. And Mm
0: -hmm. so I just think it's worth exploring just a little bit.
1: Yeah. Christmas Eve specifically, um, I always played Christmas Eve and I played Christmas Eve up until my children were, were, you know, young, very still young. And even then it was only at the church where we were going to attend right, Christmas right. Eve That's services. So say. like I'd play the, whatever it is, six o'clock and then they're very little. We'd go home, put them to bed have the Christmas Eve thing. And then, you know, daddy runs out at 10 o'clock or whatever and does the late one. And then you come back, they don't know. Yeah. It really doesn't make any difference, but it, that, that didn't, that just doesn't stay that way as they get older and they're staying up and you want to be sort of off, you know, and that's really it. Yeah. And and as my, uh, as my wife and some, you know, good friends would sometimes tell me, sometimes you need to be told this, you know, especially if you come from a freelancing kind of mindset where, where you're essentially putting your living together small checks at a time. It really helps sometimes when people that really care about you, they look you in the eye and they say, you have a job. You don't have mm. to do this. You have a job. It's okay to say no to this, even yeah. if it does mean you won't go ever back to that church or whatever. And sometimes that's worth, you know, pondering before you book yourself so much that to, to like you said, you resent the gig, right? you know? And I used, I, I was like that my first several years at the, um, um, at the university, I'd flip through my, calendar and be like, oh man. And then I'd see like 20 or 21 days in a row of doing something. Even if it was a relatively easy thing, like maybe a local thing on a Sunday morning, or whatever, but it's, uh, I really could just use a day where I don't have to do anything. And that became more important as the kids got older. And, you know, I started to put my energies more, um, more heavily into certain aspects of my job at the university and stuff like that. So yeah. so that's why that question is, and, and all questions like that, it, it depends on so many factors. And I think a person in their 20s and a person in their 30s and a person in their 40s, they're all going to answer that in a different way, you know, because it all kind of depends as you're moving through your career, what are your priorities and what do you really need you know, to to, to get you to the next step. Or if you're at a point where you're not trying to climb anymore, that's another thing, Yeah, you know, you you get to the point where you don't want to climb anymore. Things are really good. That's the sort of you have a job thing. When you realize that, hey, you know, actually, I I was going to say this to you at lunch because like you said at the beginning there, we were just having lunch and talking a lot. And I'm I'm glad we cut that conversation short so we could talk about more of this here, like with the mics on, you know, and I was going to say something. And I was like, no, no, save that for the podcast if it comes (laughs) up. But I I can't attribute this to anybody. Maybe it's not a saying that comes from a a particular person but I saw it on some viral something at some point recently and it really stuck to me. And it says, remember when you wanted what you have. Mm -hmm. And I've thought of that a lot lately. And that's a really healthy thing to remind yourself of when you think you're just spinning your wheels and working your, your tail off. You know, take a step back and look at what you are doing and realize that you've achieved a whole lot of what you set out to do. Almost anybody can say that. Even Even if they're not where they had pointed their ship when they were 18, you know, you're still... Doing pretty well. And that's true of kind of everybody, really, you know, because everybody's on a journey. They're going somewhere. They, they have things they're pleased about, the things that they don't like so much and things they want to replace this with that. And they still have the dream of this or that, whatever it is. But where you are is probably not a miserable daily grind that you just hate.
0: Yeah, I think you know? the miserable daily grind part comes from a dissatisfaction with the present, right? And yeah. so you're thinking, I have to work for some future and I'll sort of put off my happiness now yeah, yeah. for the pursuit of that future where I think I'll be happier. We were, we were talking about this too. I think it's, you know, that's, that's one of the most important things I've realized recently. And I know this is outside of the context of freelancing, but I've just realized that, Uh, I could call myself like a freelance content creator, you know, like Mm -hmm. this kind of idea that I don't, I'm not work for anybody. I don't do anything. I'm just like making what I want. And so there's a lot of possibility that exists with that. I would say there's a lot of possibility that exists in a freelancer's career as well. And you just, it's easy to get in the hat, the mindset of feeling like uh, if you just keep doing, something will happen. Right, right. (laughs) But wondering if I'm doing the right things is a very important part of that that question too, but also just recognizing, like you just said, you said it very well, that there's a lot of stuff that's happening right now that's worth remembering too, that, you know, even if you don't have the, the full-time huge career you want, if you are working at all, that's better than not, right? That's one step in the direction of, right and being able to be thankful for that. Cause there's a lot of people who have full-time employment that are insanely unhappy.
1: Yeah. yeah. And so
0: I just, yeah, I think like being sort of present in this gratitude attitude of gratitude, like we were saying, no yeah. matter how goofy it sounds, I think is a really yeah. important mindset to have at any stage. Yeah. In my opinion.
1: And I think people have to figure that out in their own time. Yeah. You know, some people might figure that out when they're much younger than others that, get further along in, in life or whatever. But yeah, you just have to be content with what you're doing, you know? Yeah, it's hard sometimes. Yep, Yeah. There was a uh, colleague that, uh, this is many years ago, just a, hey, how you doing? As one was coming in and, one, and I was going out the building or whatever it was um, at school and, and uh, not, I don't think this was an insincere response. It was literally a, how you doing? You know, sometimes you ask somebody, how are you doing? And the answer is, oh, how are you doing? And you don't answer the question. It's just a greeting. But I got an answer. He's like, hey, I'm teaching music to young people every day and, and playing when I can. It's great. Mm-hmm. And then he walked past and went on. And I'll always remember that. Yeah. You know? And I've mentioned it to this person before that hey remember a long time ago you said that I just I thought that was great. <laughs> and it's yeah, true it's sometimes cr- you have to do that even if you wanted to be, you know, in the uh, XYZ, you know, philharmonic but you're, you know, a, a school music teacher. It's, you know, remind yourself sometimes yeah. that hey that's pretty awesome too. That's you know? good advice. Yeah. Uh, do you want to dig into the the international trip aspect, sure, yeah. especially in light of our current climate? <laughs> yeah. Um, Luckily, I don't have anything scheduled right <laughs> now that's uh, going to be a problem. So see, yeah, as long as I've been
0: here and I've known Eric, it seems like I think you've done like five in the last six years, right?
1: Yeah. Well, my first trip to Russia was in 2009, and um, and let's see, there's been um, a number of of other places I've gone, and, and essentially that location you know and St Petersburg and Moscow, those two cities specifically um, having been there a number of times that's really a, a, a one of the one of the more permanent, relationship kind of places, you know, that, that we've developed. And I'm going to say we, when we talk about that, because um, although I've gone and done a lot of solo work over there and stuff, it's never really been entirely on my own. And when you said that that would be something, this topic would be something you'd want to talk about on the podcast. One of the main themes I wanted to make sure I say is that um, we don't ever, and I think some of this might overlap even with uh, the freelancing thing. We don't really ever create, opportunities to do amazing things completely by ourselves. You know, it's who you know that cares uh, enough to, you know, maybe bring you in on something they're doing or share, you know, some connections they have. And really that's, I think almost anybody in the music business would think for just a moment and come up with several names throughout their career of people that have, uh, you know, affected them in that way. And then things might come from that that become, you know, your Personal, you know, feathers in your cap and and whatnot, but it all kind of begin begins somewhere, you know. And my trips to Russia recently have been primarily centered around my uh, uh, brass quintet. We call ourselves the Fortress Brass, and we named it that because uh, Peter and Paul Fortress in St. Petersburg is, uh, you know, one of the locations uh, in, in that's uh, in that city. And we just really had to name it something the first year that we put that group together to go to Russia. And what it is, is is uh, it's all college teachers, and we're all from different universities. And the thinking there, and has worked out pretty well, is that it's... Um, than a collaboration across numerous universities. And each of the schools, you know, likes that very much, of course. And it uh, also helps us with funding and stuff because each individual person can kind of be responsible for, you know, making themselves available for that. And then we go over there, we play and we teach. There's a lot of people that we've gotten to know over there and we've uh, reciprocated. So a lot of the, some of our best friends over there that are, that are wonderful musicians and, you know, really well-known high-end people in their circles over there have come over to our schools and done some things, conducting and playing recitals. And uh, it's a, it's a really wonderful thing that we've got going on and, um, and we enjoy it a lot. And um, it's, just, it's, it's just been a lot of fun, you know, and, and, and really provide a lot of perspective too on all kinds of things, whether it's politics or, I mean, you name it, just kind of traveling is, is good for you, you know, yeah. especially to a place that is relatively, I guess the right word, exotic to an American, right? It's not, it's not Europe. It's, it's, it's Russia, you know, but really it's just a place with people <laughs> and they do what, what all of us do and they love music and they love uh, their children and you know what I mean? There's just yeah. a lot that, that uh, really um, I think plays into a lot of things we've just been talking about, Yeah, <laughs> being happy and whatnot. I, I, I learned a lot about that, seeing, seeing people and getting to know them very well too, you know, and also there, plus, you know, I've had the opportunity through the university to go to a lot of places. We have a, um, a uh, relationship, University of Alabama does with um, Cuba. So I've been to Cuba, which is another one of those places that you really can't just pick up and go, you know, as an American. Um, and, uh, let's see. Um, and through Europe's so a few places there. Um, at one point we went on a trip. This was a quintet thing too, with our faculty quintet. We played in, uh, uh went to Italy and did a number of cities there. And, you know, so there's a lot of things that that, yeah. that, that come together like that, that, uh, you know, they just provide a lot of really great opportunities to, um, perform and meet people. But the one shot visits are different than when, when we go back. And that's what's special about Russia. You know, and it's also gotten to the point where truly every trip I've taken to another country, it's never been vacation. I mean, they all feel like they're kind of vacation in the sense that they're fun, but it's not me going there just as a tourist. I always feel like the trip would be missing a lot if I didn't play and teach and meet people there and hear them play and, and interact in the way that the music profession allows us to do. You know, I feel like I give something to them over there instead of just kind of going and take, take, take and eat at the restaurants and go to the sites and then come home like like a tourist. I feel like that wouldn't be nearly as fulfilling. So for those of us,
0: well, I have two questions. The first one is, can you describe sort of the genesis of these trips? Were they already happening? And then when you got the job, you just sort of became a part of these trips happening? Or was there an initiative that mm-hmm. was started that made it so you guys could take these trips overseas. And then the other question is for those of us that are not backed by an institution, Mm -hmm. are there ways that you could be take, maybe not, like you said, maybe not make this happen in that way, but are there steps that you could be taking that would uh, possibly lead you there without the backing of a institution, an educational institution?
1: Well, for the first question, you know, what was the genesis of this stuff? Speaking about Russia specifically, um, yes, there was already um, something established there. And I'll, I'll uh, talk about the, um, the other trumpet player in my quintet. His name is Brad Ulrich. And uh, Dr. Ulrich teaches at Western Carolina University. And he has been going to Russia for several years before I went on the first trip. And my first trip was on uh, his invitation to be part of um, what at the time was a um, international trumpet festival of, of, of some kind. I forget the exact name of it as it translates to English, but, um, that was a, um, a solo opportunity. We went together and did some things together, you know, and, uh, but that was a, a solo trip with, uh, that being sort of the main, the uh, purpose for it was to go and, and play some solos. And, um, and thanks to that invite, that, you know, help get that connection going in the first place. Mm. And since he and I are together in this fortress brass, you know, and, and maintaining that and, and uh, Brad goes to Russia every year in some capacity, you know, and our brass quintet has gone maybe on average every other year, you know, roughly a couple consecutive years here and there. But um, that has, uh, that's, that's something, you know, kind of along the lines of what I was saying earlier, that these opportunities, we often have people to thank, you know, and in that case, I certainly have him to thank for, opening that door in the first place and saying, Hey, you want to come with me when I go to this place to do this cool thing? Yeah. And you're like, yeah. And that so ties, the networking thing it, you right, were talking about. It ties right back to the first uh, things I tried to do just to make some money to pay my rent when I graduated with a master's degree and I was in an apartment in a big city and okay, now I'm going to be a professional musician. It's the same stuff. It's all the same stuff, you know? And, um, and then to, to to get into your other question about how might somebody do this without a university, you know, I, I, you mentioned that you know, weeks ago when we were talking about this a little bit and I was giving that a lot of thought lately, how, what I might say here on the podcast about that. And that's, I don't know, on one hand, it's kind of a tough question to answer because I'm not in that position. You know, I, I feel very fortunate by being affiliated with the university that I am able to say, hi, I'm so-and-so from so-and-so. Mm. And you represent that place as a certain, there's a certain, um, there's a, certain um, a certain something that, that provides certain weight, if yeah. you will, to your uh, initial contact, you know? But without that, are you, you know, valueless? No, <laughs> I don't think so at all. And I think since, you know, so much of this stuff ties in, um, to each other, whether you're just doing local gigs or trying to, you know, build something into a, a, something a little more, a bit bigger and farther reaching. It's all just about getting to know people and, provi- and being willing to provide and give, right? If you're willing to teach and play, people will receive that and they'll love it. That's true of of really anybody. And if you're just doing that because it's at a middle school, great. And you want to go and you want to play somewhere and you just play at some church, great. Um, Do you get paid for that? Well, you should. You want to try to make it that way rather than give it away. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Let's let's tie back to what we said earlier about that. But in the same way, if you just imagine, hey, if if I just got plopped in, I don't know, England, right? Could I find somebody who'd want to hear me play my trumpet and talk about it? yeah just probably yes. And for a lot of us in this business, if you think through your network, you know, and I tell my students this too, that the people you sit next to in symphonic band in your freshman year, like these are going to be your professional colleagues. Sometimes we'll get out of school and we're trying to make ends meet as uh, you know as musicians doing what we're doing and and we forget to call upon all those contacts. See, hey, where is everybody? I mean, nowadays, that's probably, I think, less of a thing because, just thanks to social media, we don't completely lose touch with people. Yeah, right. You know, as long yeah, as they're that's active that's in some true. way, you kind of always know, hey, yeah. what's so-and-so up to? Well, we just know. You know, the truth is that, that wasn't always that way. You didn't know at all. And you had to ask around and then, you know, but what would happen? You call somebody from your past, like a hang up the phone on you. You know, if you've not been a jerk ever, you know, it's, hey, great to hear from you. And things can kind of build from that, you know, and you may find some people have set up their, they they're, they pitch their tent over in Europe. Hey, I live over there now. Oh, really? And then who knows? Put something together, maybe yeah, that you yeah. can go and do it. I think one of the biggest challenges would be funding. You know, because these things aren't free. Um, now, if you want to, kind of like a person that's in the audition circuit, you know, you take a certain chunk of your money that you're earning just in your in your daily life, and uh, once you pay your 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 rent and your other bills if you can save a little bit and then you can put that toward a plane ticket or whatever it is to go take auditions. Well, you can invest that money into something like this as well. But, you know, we've also all seen online that there are plenty of uh, brass quintets are common and uh, other other chamber groups where they get get something off the ground. They then either connect with some management or they set up their own management and they get sponsorship. And I mean, if people are willing to hustle that hard, they can make that happen. Yeah, it's um,
0: something I've been learning a lot about recently. Actually, working with uh, Karen Kubitas, who has her own artist. She's CEO of Kubitas Artist Services. And she kind of says a very similar thing is that um, there's just steps you can take to make yourself, uh, you know, to basically what it is, is just taking yourself seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, my version of this is um, when I. When I was in Chicago, I didn't play that many gigs actually, um, because I think a lot of the guys at DePaul and Roosevelt downtown got a lot of the probably the stuff. So we got these fringe gigs here and there. And I left Chicago because I couldn't afford to stay there because I didn't have any gigs. And then when I got the job in Indianapolis, I thought, all right, here we go. Like people were gonna start calling me like crazy. I'm gonna be doing master classes all over the place. Mm-hmm. And that didn't really happen. The two opportunities I got was one was in Poland and one was in Texas. Mm -hmm. And both of them were very good friends of mine, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like some random picked up the phone and called me. It was connections I had already made with people that I cared about. And then uh, I got the job in Alabama and it's the same thing. And so I started to get really bummed out. I thought to myself, well, uh, why can't I do this, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I realized, well if I've never told anybody that I want to do this, why would anybody call me up and ask me to do it? You (laughs) know? And so I think it goes to what you're saying here is that, uh, in that sense, it requires me to make this opportunity happen yeah, yeah. by first making it people aware that I even want to do it in the first place. Right. Then you're reliant on, you know, the the other half of the equation to sort of, and then some of that is just happenstance. Some of it, I assume it just works out that way. But then once you have one, two, three opportunities, that's where you can, like you said, that's where you start your, I'm going to try to get asked back type. Right type thing. And then it, you know, so it builds slowly, but if you build it the right way, you, it it builds
1: and lasts. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you've had a couple opportunities like that. And didn't you do um, a Brandenburg somewhere in the, uh, in the far East? So
0: I I can, I can tell this story really quickly because it's, it's actually fascinating to me. So a very good friend of mine, his name is Ben Nillis. He was the assistant conductor of the, my undergrad orchestra. He was the librarian. He was also the assistant conductor. Mm -hmm. He and I became really good friends my senior year. Uh, We like studied scores together. I tried to help him like teach me how to like look at a score and stuff like that. And then I left and went to Chicago. We stayed in touch. And then over the years, his career is gone. My career is gone. And now he's the conductor of a group, or he uh, I assume he still is. I haven't talked to him in a little while, but uh, a, a smaller regional group in Minnesota called the Masabi Symphony Orchestra. And he asked me if I wanted to play uh, a solo with him. I said, sure. Maybe I reached out to him and said, dude, if you ever need a trumpet soloist. And he said, sure, we'll think about it. And then he found some funding and he had me come play Quiet City and then the Brandenburg on the same concert. <laughs> and I was like, absolutely. Let's do it. So in we played order. Yeah. Yeah. Better than the other way it around, was right? first, Right. <laughs> um, and so we played three concerts. The third concert, uh, I do not remember the name of the city. It was like, it was about as far north as you can get. I do not remember the name of the city. And there was a, uh, a man named Paul. I forget his last name, but he was a horn player and he played in the, um, uh, St. Paul chamber orchestra. And so he heard me do the Brandenburg. He's like, you sounded great. And he's in St. Paul. So I was like, oh, do you know Tom Rolfs? He used to play. He's like, Tom is one of my best friends. In two weeks, we're going to go ice fishing. <laughs> it's like, this is insane. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. This is insane. Well, yeah. we should get a picture together. I'll send it to Tom. <laughs> That's awesome. And then. Three weeks later, I had I, I was back home in Alabama and I woke up and my phone, I had an uh, email from the Malaysian Philharmonic asking if I wanted to play the Brandenburg with the Malaysian Phil. And I thought it was a joke, you know what I mean? Like, how <laughs> could this possibly be real? How do they know who I am? And what happened was that picture got sent to Tom and then the Malaysian Phil, like few days later had a principal trumpet candidate that had to drop out for some reason. They never told me, but they had to drop out and they were supposed to play the Brandenburg, right? And so now they're like, well, what do we do? Who has the Brandenburg just ready to go? The personnel manager of Malaysia, his name is Tim Sukamoto, I think. He used to work for Boston. And so he knew Tom Roth. So he calls Tom and he says, hey, Tom, do you know anybody who can play the Brandenburg? And Tom said, well, I just got a picture of Ryan playing it a few days ago or a week ago or something like that. He's probably ready to do it. And that's how I got that gig. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just like so much happenstance, you mm-hmm. know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And but and those connections go all the way back to your undergrad. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Because that's where you started the story. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: So with Ben and we developed a good relationship there. And then, yeah, through Tom and a good relationship at Tanglewood. Now I got into Tanglewood. So like right. if I would ne- didn't get into Tanglewood, that wouldn't have existed. But yeah, you just never know. I mean, that's a k- kind of like a longish-winded story of saying you never really know yeah. at what point some of these connections might come to fruition, not even if they will, but at what point. Right. There's no sort of statute of limitations on right. the, the yeah. relationships you have with people.
1: And anybody listening to this should realize that Tanglewood and, you know, Tom Rolf's and the Brandenburg and things like that can be, those are, those are big things, right? They can be replaced with whatever is in somebody's life, these things happen like this at any scale. It isn't like, well, see, for this guy to say, of course it came through because he plays Brandenburg and he sounded good. And you know, if I got the opportunity to play Brandenburg, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to Malaysia, you know, a month later because Brandenburg is really hard or whatever it is. Right. It's, it's that there's some analog in everybody's life of connections like this that get three, four, five deep. And then all of a sudden you're doing something awesome. And if you just look at how it came to be, it all sort of makes sense and you never really could exactly plan it, but it's all kind of perfectly planned. Yeah. <laughs> one thing yeah. just kind of led to another, led to another. And if you, uh, um, you know, find those things in your life and notice what, what was responsible for it. And ultimately if it comes back to, oh yeah, like I'm nice when I do a gig, I work hard, so I sound as good as I can and things like that. Those are the essentials that make it work and um and there's a lot to, to learn from that so you also have to be proactive because there's a certain amount of proactivity on your part to even get that going yeah you know Yeah. and then you know a good an- analogy to it is like you've got you know a whole bunch of campfires going and you just kind of go over here and you stoke this one once in a while and then this one over here starts to die and you'll stoke that one a little bit and that's part of maintaining your network staying in touch with people
0: you know. Yeah, I think I just realized that part of the importance of having this discussion is I think sometimes we hear it's good to be a good person and to work hard and to be nice and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. maybe sometimes it feels like it's enough of a given that it might not matter. Mm. And I yeah. think that, you know, what I've experienced and you've experienced to a greater degree, and I would say anybody who has had experiences long enough in this business would say that it actually does matter a lot. It matters enough that even if it doesn't feel like it matters, it still matters. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Cuz it's sort of it has to be there. Yeah. You
0: know. And that that's like you're that's sort of like doing the due diligence to do that. And yeah, I like what you said about it being scalable. So like, it's just what influence can you have right now? Basically like right now, who could you be nice to? Who can you reach out to? You know, who could you do? Like you said, a middle school class, could you go do something like that and work with that? Like
1: who is in your network or who could be in your network like right now? That's literally how I built my uh, studio at my house back in Chicago, back in the day was going to middle schools. It's like, why am I driving past the school every day? Let me just see, <laughs> ask ask friend of a friend, see who's teaching there, right? Call them up, say, hey, I live in the area, I can do this. Would would it be, you know, it's not even whether or not they have somebody that maybe is already teaching all their students. They're still probably going to say, sure, if you want to come in and do a, a little group lesson, if it's, you know, a beginning band or a, a sectional, if it's a, a high school, go ahead and just get in, get in there. And then things come from that.
0: Yeah, so... Um, I did want to touch on this last thing. It doesn't really have anything to do with freelancing, but I really like w- what you said at lunch. Um, this is coming from teacher Eric, mm-hmm. uh, this idea of trying to find the balance between what is your responsibility as a teacher and the student's responsibility as a student uh, and, yeah. and managing that and making sure, cause quickly from my perspective, uh, it's hard for me as a teacher to Understand how far I should go for a student, and that I'm willing to do so much. That's kind of my personality, right? I'll just go for it and really work hard for the student. Now that's really, really great. But when something doesn't necessarily pan out, I take it on myself. Yeah, I would imagine most beginning, like not beginning teachers, but like you know, you're early in your career, that this would be difficult for everyone because you just don't have perspective and you don't have the the tools yet to understand what will and what won't and that kind of what will and won't work rather. Yeah. So you just had a great way of talking about it. I don't know if you just kind of want to like uh, roll with that for a second, this idea of how, what your perspective is on how to maintain balance between I'm going to work hard for this student, but then they're also going to have to put some effort forward too.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, there's two ways that th- this can be looked at. One is just what's best for the student as far as their development right? It's, it's, and there's so many ways you could talk about parenting the same way. If you're doing more for them and protecting them, are they maybe less well served by that or sh- should you allow them to you know, learn on their own through experience and let them fail and stuff like that, right? And the the most the people would agree that yes, that's better to to not you know hold their hands and 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 uh, make everything perfect for them. They learn less that way. Um, the other thing about this is from the for the teacher, you know, him or herself, and maintaining part of that sort of that you know to, to use a, a phrase everybody knows the work life balance, you know you and I, I think are similar and a lot of teachers are like this where we invest so much into the students and their success is important to us and their happiness and fulfillment is really important to us and so that drives what we do and if we directly hitch our emotions to their life there's problems with that it comes home with you and it's difficult to manage that because you know there's a bunch of reasons one is that young people are very up and down you know, you got to stay even keel. <laughs> when you got a family at home, it's the same thing. You know, the teenagers in the house, sometimes things are wildly great and wildly the end of the world is coming or whatever. You have to just even things out and, and just, you know, take it all in stride. And, and it's, um, you have to have a little bit of separation there with students because of that. Also, when you're raising, you know, children or helping students develop their, their, their future, there's going to be failures. Those are the good experiences. Ultimately, when they look back on it someday, that was were formative. And um, if we're too close to that, it really, it just hurts so bad, right? If they say, I don't know, don't get in any grad schools that they auditioned for or something like that. Um, you know, I, luckily I haven't had that experience, um, but you know, that, that could theoretically happen and, and whether or not that is going to just tear you up, or if instead, hey, look, this, this, this happens sometimes. What are some other options? And hopefully, if you hadn't already maybe discussed ahead of time, what are your choices? What are you looking at? Um, what might you do if that scenario were to play out? You have those kind of discussions before you even send them off to their first audition, you know, so maybe as a teacher, you might learn through such experiences. Not only does the student learn something important, you can learn something important like, okay, how can we avoid that happening again or avoid them being, um, make them better equipped for it when it will happen. Because apparently this is a thing that happens, right? As a teacher, you learn things like that. Um, so I think what I've learned over the years is I, I, I know myself, I can't disconnect, you know, and be like, whatever. <laughs> but at the same time, I, uh, I want to make sure that I'm guiding them and um, helping them through the ups and the downs, being aware that there are ups as well as downs. You know, these things happen and you you're really trying to help them as best as you can have an idea of the profession they're getting into and the challenges that that it has. You know, college is a safe place to screw things up you know, like yeah, be I've late to a dress rehearsal, stuff like that. Right. And so the teachers have to make decisions when a student, you know, does something like that. Do you come down on them like a ton of bricks um, or not? <laughs> right. And so those are, those are things that I think it's going to depend on the individual teacher's personality. Um, but really experience is a huge part of it too. Cause you, st- you start to figure out um, what reaches your students more effectively, depending on the culture you have in your studio, things like that. Um, Also, every student is different, you know, and we change as we get older and, and different, uh, different times of, of our life and our career and how we see things that colors, how you are helping a a student through his experiences or her experiences too. And so, um, I, th- I think I'm getting kind of at what you're asking, right? right absolutely. And yeah. um, I think what it really comes down to is our job is to create opportunities for people that have an infinite variety of dreams and desires and things that they want to do. And we just need to help them have, realize, uh, like some of the things we've been talking about, there's a lot out there for you and just waiting for you to do it. Yeah. Including things that no one's done before. Yeah, so yeah. Think about it in a, think more broadly and make, make something happen. You know, that's up to you to do it. And that's very um, non specific, really. Yeah. You know? but sometimes so,
0: that's the best stuff. You know, you let somebody else find the meaning within that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then just as far as being a teacher and not, not going crazy, you, you, you figure out how to, to um, you know, to take that ride with them yeah uh, realizing that you're ultimately a coach and an observer it's their life it's their decisions you know when they decide where they want to go to grad school or what they want to do or what they if, if you know if you're helping a student through a a, a change of major You know, that happens sometimes. Yeah. You know, occasionally that is exactly what they should do. And maybe you guided them in that direction and it's better for them in the long run. Maybe it's someone with unbelievable potential and you're you're heartbroken that they really don't love trumpet like you wish they should. And inside you're screaming, "Ah, I wish I had, you know, your XYZ skill when I was your age and you got it and you just want to throw it away. You know, those kind of things. You just have to be a more experienced teacher and know how to handle stuff like that and not let it just drive you crazy. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, dude.
0: Yeah, this was really fun, man. I really appreciate uh, all your wisdom and advice. And
1: I hope that I don't get a review about talking too much in this interview. <laughs> well, uh, like, like I told you earlier, my students always tease me that I talk so much. So. No, that's great. So the <laughs> you, podca- I think a you, podcast You were able is, to get a word in here uh, or there, so... <laughs> the podcast
0: is a place to do it. So if people... Would like to get in touch with you for anything. Yeah. Um, a, are you open to that? And B, if so, where should they go? And then I'll put it in the show notes too.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, just email is usually the best way to make first contact near, these days. Near uh, yeah. Alabama email yep. Just address. search me up at the uh, University of Alabama and there's a page there with my uh, email address. Right. I'll, and, I'll put that in the show notes. And that's it. And Thanks. I'm on Facebook and, you know. Well, that's basically it. But I'm on Facebook too. Sure, sure. Um, but email is a really good way to do it. Or uh, you know, if there's if somebody's ever local or whatever, that's another thing. You know, you you might notice this too because you're you play for the public as your job, and you know, some people should be aware that it's okay to come up and meet. Yeah, people, yeah. People, you know? I think there's
0: like a thing there that yeah. I I
1: don't I don't
0: think should be there, but I think is there. You know what I mean? Like, as a performer, you're just like, why
1: wouldn't somebody come up and say, hey?
0: But I think that sometimes people can be not even intimidated, just like, oh, he doesn't want to talk. Yeah, it's sort of
1: inherent in the profession. It's part of the tuxedo, it's something about it. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Well, that, uh, I'll leave his, his
0: email in the show notes. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me, uh, you can go to my website, that's not spit.com, or you can go to Instagram or Facebook, search That's Not Spit, and you'll find me
1: there. There was one more thing I wanted to add. Oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Some of it is spit. <laughs> Some of it's spit. <laughs> right? I. It's mostly condensation. I think, But you th- can't rename the podcast, so.
0: That's what I was going to say. I think it's now... <laughs> better known as the name of my podcast okay. than anything else. Fair sure enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you enjoyed this episode, it's, it's funny. I If you enjoyed it or you didn't enjoy it, you should leave a rating and a review because this is the only way I'm ever going to be able to really know, unless you want to send me a direct message and say I don't like this. But if there are things about the podcast that you don't like, I would need to know that too, in case things (laughs) can be improved. So, um, a rating and a review helps people find it. It helps me know what you guys like and stuff like that. So, um, um, be vocal, you know, let,
1: let it's, I don't know, it goes into what we've talked about, but just be vocal. Um, yeah. Listeners, um, Ryan is really serious about this podcast. He takes it really seriously and he's doing great work. Um, and it's on his mind all the time. He really does want to hear, feedback and um, and get this get the word out about this thing and I think I think this is great so oh, thank keep you. it up for you know a long time to come I appreciate it um and then another
0: way uh, that you guys can help if you want is just to share the stuff on social media so other people can find it um I want to thank Brandon Yokum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast and most of all I'd like to thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time